Okay. Yes. So, God is merciful. I found out 20 minutes ago I'll be preaching. And uh, I, I'll share with you a little bit, and then I'll read the scripture. I, the Lord invaded my life in uh, March of 1974, I think on a Friday or a Saturday night. And uh, I was so excited about whatever it was that God had done to me, in me, or something, that uh, I started preaching on Monday morning at homeroom in high school. I was a freshman. I was 15. So that was kind of, my first sermon in, to the guy sitting next to me in high school was kind of spontaneous. So this is kind of the same kind of a thing. <laughs> I, remember, I remember what I preached to him, too. It was very effective. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second Timothy 4, 6 through 18. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as helpless people, but as grateful people. Lord, we pray you would help us to finish the race all the days of our lives and help us to see your will for us. Lighten the way and our path for our whole lives through this sermon today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I teach in seminary, those of you that don't know me, and uh, this was a sermon 
that I had prepared for them and a lesson that I had prepared for them. So it's, uh, it's not actually spontaneous, although my being able to present it to you here now <laughs> is a little bit spontaneous. But back in uh, the fall of 73, I was a freshman, a 15-year-old freshman at Groveton High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And somebody who didn't know what they were talking about told me that joining the cross-country team was good preparation for wrestling season. And I was destined to be a wrestler. My brother was a wrestler. So wrestling was my second purpose for being after I came to Christ. First it was Jesus, then it was wrestling. And they taught me into joining the cross-country team. And so the first day of school, the little thin, and it didn't look like an evil man, but apparently he ended up being one. The little thin cross-country track coach came up to us in the locker room. There were 10 or 15 on the team. And he said, I'll meet you at Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon is George Washington's home. And I knew it was about seven miles away. You had to go down to the parkway and then get on the bike path on the parkway and make it to Mount Vernon. And I thought, well, one time I ran five miles. Seven miles, I can make seven miles. And he'll be there in the, uh, the track van. There was a bus, not a van, but a school bus, a yellow school bus that picked us up. You know, I knew that all the sports teams traveled in these yellow school buses. So I thought, okay, I can make seven miles if we go slowly. Because <laughs> at one time I've run five miles. So we take off, and uh, it was painful, but we made it. We come, it's the, the pike path winds back and forth. You come to the top of the hill. I, I was just there. I took pictures of this place so I can document everything I'm saying, okay, in case you doubt any of this. And uh, so we come to the top of the hill, and it was a very unpleasant sight because the little skinny guy was not in a bus. He was on his bicycle. So that meant the very first day of, of cross-country practice, we were running 14 miles. <laughs> I almost, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I had made it there, and now we're gonna turn around and run back. And, uh, but back in the day, back in the 70s, we had no water. We had no concept of carrying water with you, so we ran through people's front yards <laughs> and turned on the water spigot and drank the water from their hose. <laughs> it all worked. And, you know, and if they'd looked out and seen 15 high school kids drinking water, they would have just said, oh, okay, good. Got some high school kids in the front yard now. That's the way the 70s were, so you young people don't understand, but that's just the way it was. <laughs> so many of you young people here. Yeah. So, now what does that have to do with 2 Timothy? Well, everything. Everything. And again, the, the uh, people that told me that was good preparation for wrestling season were just lying. It was just torture. And Kate, what is cross-country running for rather large, heavy people like I was? I mean, muscular. I guess we can say muscular. It was just torture. So he was lying. They were lying to me, but that's another issue. What does that have to do with 2 Timothy? 2 Timothy is about Paul, the trainer, training his athlete to finish the race. 
knowing that he can do it. That's what it's about. The whole book of 2 Timothy is about Paul being a coach, a life coach for a younger man. Paul was probably 65 and Timothy was probably about 45. So about 20 years difference, something like that. And uh, that's what it's all about. And so the passage to emphasize it again says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. So Paul refers to these three things. And uh, I'm going to simply today answer five questions, okay? First, why does he refer to racing at all? Why does he refer to racing at all, or athletics, right? Well, he's got soldier, I fought the good fight, he's referring to fighting, I've kept the faith, that's a hard one to, we'll, we'll get into it in a second, but, but then racing, why does he refer to racing? Well, we were just in uh, Turkey, which now, of course, has changed a lot, but it used to be a, a, a Roman and Greek stronghold. And uh, Kathy could tell me, but in one of the ruins we were in, we were in three ruins, one of them had what's called an uh, agora, which was a marketplace, and you think of it maybe as a flea market, but actually it was a huge square area in every Greek and Roman town had an agora, and it had classrooms off to the side so that visiting teachers would come and teach, and it had a covered walk space, and it was big. It's about like a football field. So a very large area with a covered walk space. So in winter, they could even run. What it was was there was athletics going on all the time. In fact, I'm trying to uh, see, yes, there were 93 days in the Roman calendar dedicated to athletic games. 93 days, that's two a week, almost two a week. So every town you would go to, the center of life was the track. So Paul would have probably been, if he was a traveling teacher and accepted as a traveling teacher, which from Acts 17 we assume that he was, then he would have been around these, in the middle you would have wrestling, which is the better sport, in case you're wondering. It's much better than cross country, in case you're wondering, although it can be grueling. So you would, he, he would have seen it night and day. Everyone in the Roman and Greek world would have seen uh, athletic games all the time. And that's, who he was, uh, that's where he was ministering, right? Which is a sermon within a sermon. That is, we need to be relevant to our culture, which is why yesterday or Friday or Saturday, Saturday, that's yesterday, it was good to vote the way we did on how we stand with homosexuality because it's relevant now. It's an urgent thing now. We need to, the church has to have a voice, you know. So Paul was being relevant here, and uh, that's why he was talking in that way. <clears throat> and you can see it even, uh, even more clearly because there's, it's implanted in other places of Scripture. 
Sec the second question, why does Paul refer, uh, refer to racing at the end of his life? Well, I want to get to that by going to uh, 1 Corinthians 4.21, which is not the most popular verse, and you never want Paul to write this to you, but he says, do you want me to come to you with love or with a rod? In Corinthians. Okay? With love or with a rod? And in Greek, the word rod is robdos, rabdos. We probably get rod from it because the, the word rod is actually in the middle of that. R-O-D is part of the letters of rabdos. You just take out the B, rodos, right? You want me to come to you with love or with a rodos? Now, a rodos was a six-foot-long stick. And athletic trainers and judges carried this stick around. It was also a king's scepter, the same thing. But so the athletic trainers, when they would be training a wrestler or even a, uh, even a, a runner, if you didn't do what you're supposed to do, whack! <laughs> you know, you put your hand on an illegal move or something, whack! It would hit your hand. You didn't do it again, probably. <laughs> right? So do you want me to come as an athletic trainer that hits you with a, a, a six-foot-long, uh, my father would have called him a switch, but a you know, switch could be kind of flimsy. This wasn't flimsy. This thing hurt. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, was already referring to it. And then if you uh, remember, there's a famous passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, where Paul refers to running in a more kind of flamboyant way, which says, do you not know those that running in a race, or this version says, in a race course, indeed all run, but one receives the prize. Run that you may obtain it. Now everyone striving in athletic competition controls himself in all things. Then indeed they, then indeed they, that they might receive perishable, a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run thus, not as uncertainly. I fight thus, not as beating the air. And I chose this uh, King James because of this last reference. But I batter my body and bring it into servitude, lest having preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. And so, and, <clears throat> so Paul, is actually telling the Corinthians they have to run this race of absolute self-control to be the witness for Christ in 1 Corinthians 9 they're supposed to be. They batter their bodies and probably medieval Roman Catholics took that and <laughs> they batter their body. They started, there's different, different parts of Christianity that actually flagellate themselves. So Paul was being relevant to everyone both in these kind of fighting sports and in the running sports. And in the center of Paul's letter, it's really struck, it's a chiastic structure. And that simply means it goes to a point in the middle of the letter and then comes back out. And so a lot of ancient literature is chiastically structured, okay? If you, if you want an example, go home and look at this one. But in the middle of 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy 3 says, I'm writing these things to, to you that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is from Isaiah 2, which I preached about a while back. And today, Rick 
mention Kairos from my sermon. Was that from my sermon? See there? I'm not doing everything in vain. Good for you, my, my Kairos friend. So uh, 2 Timothy is structured chiastically with probably 16 and 3, 16 and 17 in the middle of it. But first, Paul refers to exactly what he's talking about, all three metaphors in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 7, 3 through 7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, what did he say in 2 Timothy 4 we read? I have fought the good fight. So he's telling Timothy to do what he's done. You follow me? Timothy, you need to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I have fought the good fight. Timothy, I'm your trainer. I'm your example. I'm your model. You, you, in the infantry, how many of y'all served in the infantry? It's very strange. Oh, one man did. All right, good. Marine infantry. Very good. I was Army infantry. Follow me and do as I do. That's the slogan of the infantry. And you need to remember that the rest of your lives. Follow me and do as I do. That's from Gideon. That's from Gideon. Uh, follow me and do likewise is what Gideon said. Okay? So follow me and do as I do. So that's what Paul is doing. Sharon's suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to one who satisfy the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So he's got soldier, athlete, and then the athlete, he refers to himself in 2 Timothy 4. I have run, I have finished the race. He says to him, an athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, which is a runner. But I have finished the race, Timothy. Timothy, follow me and do as I do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then finally, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Crops, 2 Timothy 2. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I have kept the faith. Now in that reference, it's hard to see the exact connection, but the word there, kept, is from the Garden of Eden. Keep the garden. So the faith there, Paul is referring to the, to the faith as a garden that he's kept the weeds out of the faith, <laughs> right? He's, gar he's cultivated the, the field of the faith properly, faithfully. So he's a faithful farmer. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So whenever you read a, a book of scripture and you see certain uh, symmetry in it, in this case, look in the middle and you'll find the actual theme of the book. The most powerful part of the book will be in the, in the middle, which is what happens in 2 Timothy. It's also in 1 Timothy. So <clears throat> I asked the question, and now I have to go back and look see what the question was. Why does Paul refer to racing at the end of his life? And that is because he's training Timothy to imitate him, and he looked at his whole life as a race. And uh, all of us have done a long walk that you thought you couldn't make. And all of us have had a situation like the 
coach that I had where he says, I'll meet you at Mount Vernon and you don't know what you're getting into and then you, before you know it, you know, it's, the whole thing's a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. And that's what, of course, Timothy is, is facing, is the having to finish the race well. So Paul is, uh, is presenting himself as an imitation to follow. As Paul, and I didn't even mention it in this, uh, in this sermon, but we know that Paul, uh, if he was executed the way most uh, prisoners in Rome were executed, if you were a Roman citizen, you had the privilege of having your head cut off with a sword, right, rather than being crucified. Slaves, non-citizens were crucified. Citizens had their heads cut off. So there you go. That, that, that's what Paul was facing. All right, third question. What does he mean by, I have finished the race? This is an interesting question. What does he mean by, I have finished the race? We find out in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10 and 13, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Gone to Thessalonica. When you come, bring the cloak that I uh, left with carpets at Troas, also the books, above all the parchments. Now this is, this is kind of a funny point. Here he is, he knows he's about to be executed and yet he's still doing what? This is a Presbyterian point. I always have to make a Presbyterian point. He's still studying theology. He wants his books, in other words, he, he, well, I might, I'm about to be killed, but if I'm not, I need my parchments. If I'm not, I need the Westminster Confession of Faith. See this, he's a Presbyterian. That's what I'm trying to say. Everybody knows that. So that's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, you have to also feel for Paul and just the, the power of the love of God in his life because uh, he goes, goes on to say, at my first defense, no one stood by me. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Can you imagine? You know, he's the world's greatest missionary, the world's greatest preacher, the world's greatest uh, promoter of the church and the faith and the history of the world, and he's deserted. But guess who also was deserted? It's a Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus. So he was following in Jesus' steps. Now Luke, Luke stayed with him. So, but maybe Luke wasn't allowed into the trial. We don't, you know, we don't know. What does he mean by I finished the race? Well, we find out in 2 Timothy 4, 14, 15, and 17. Alexander the coppersmith did me the great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles who might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I have finished the race means what? That he saved his life? Is that what it means? I'm, off, I'm out of jail, you know, I get, I get to go home, I finish the race, I get to go home. Well, maybe metaphorically, maybe that's right. He meant home to Jesus, right? 
So if you can imagine for Paul being saved from the lion's mouth meant that Satan was tempting him to deny Christ in some way, right? That's what he means. Satan was trying to eat me in, in uh, where is it, 1 Peter 5. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Paul was tempted, as all of us would be, and as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, to deny Christ or to try to get out of the absolute truth of the gospel. The lion's mouth was open and he's going to get me. And what did Paul do? He did what he, uh, he I mean, we have to just assume he did what he did in Acts 19 and in Acts 17 where he preached the gospel that was understood to be there is a new king, Jesus, not Caesar. Who is king now? If you read Acts 17, you read Acts 19 because he was about to go into the theater in Ephesus, right? And they were all yelling, great is Artemis of Ephesus, great, you know, chanting 24,000 people. And he wants to go in and preach the gospel to them. I mean, like, Paul, you got to be nuts, you know. So his disciples did not let him go into the theater. Kathy and I were just at the theater. I mentioned in my previous sermon. It's giant. It's still there. The theater's still there. So we're talking about history. But in Acts 17, he says that the risen, I mean, uh, there will be a final judgment. And who is going to conduct that judgment? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to judge everyone and everything, and he proved it by raising from the dead. I know I'm hard to hear. <laughs> These mi microphones that are, and I don't have my hearing aids in either, so it makes it, I talk even louder. So he was preaching a gospel that gets your head cut off. Do you understand me? In every culture of the world, there is something about the gospel. If you take the gospel as the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, that will get you in big trouble. Mankind hates God in some form or fashion in every culture of the world. And so Paul says, I was saved from the lion's mouth by faithfully preaching whatever it was he was preaching. And it was probably that Caesar's he wasn't probably against the authority of Caesar in the absolute sense, but there's a higher, the, the true Caesar now is Jesus. Jesus rules the world. You might not see it. His, his reign might be invisible. Jesus rules, and that's why Paul was in trouble. And, he wouldn't, and, and it, it puzzled. In fact, you know what they called the first Christians? The Romans did. Atheists, because they didn't believe in all the gods. So he was being accused of atheism. And this some, some risen new God was above Caesar. So he had finished the race because he confessed Christ to be who he actually is, Lord of lords, King of kings, and Lord of lords, higher than Caesar. That's probably why. And you know, we just have to assume. So the fourth question is, is God really so demanding we have to, be, to willing, be willing to risk our lives to follow Christ faithfully? And in honor of Reformation Day, we can quote John Calvin. John Calvin was quite the preacher and, and tried to follow Christ in a 
faithful way. In 2 Timothy 2, uh, here's what Paul says about the question I just, here's what Calvin says about the question I just answered, asked. The words of Christ are perfectly clear. Matthew 10, whoever shall deny me, him will I also deny. Now, how often do we preach that? See, one of the huge problems in the American church is we preach a Christianity that's happy, always happy, and always easy. And if you read, I won't, we don't have time to read, but 2 Timothy talks about, well, I'll go ahead and, I'll just go ahead and make time. Uh, this is a early confession of the faith, apparently, 2 Timothy 2. The trust, it's a saying that's trustworthy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we, in, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Wow, can you imagine a church being named these things? Or a song? <laughs> the Church of Endurance. That's a good name, huh? The Church of Endurance. The church of not denying Christ. <laughs> what, what else? It, the church of God's faithfulness. If, if, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I mean, these things, we just don't preach. People just don't. The American church simply doesn't preach 2 Timothy 2. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But true Christianity, we're in training all the time. We should be in training in every church and every place on the face of the earth for all time to be prepared to give a, an account before people that want to do us harm. That's, that's, that's what the church is for. That's what the historic church has always done. The, the, the militant church has always been the church of martyrs. It, it, martyrs maybe of your feelings, martyrs of your career, martyrs of something, maybe in sometimes your life, Right? And so that's what I, the main parallel between the, my coach and what Paul was doing with Timothy was, he smiled when he said it. Yeah, well, I'm going to meet you out Mount Vernon. You know, and what he meant was, I'm going to torture you today, and it's going to be good for you. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. He said, you're going to, smiling, I'm going to meet you at Mount Vernon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because Paul was a trainer, and this is simply God's will. It is simply God's will that we are able and willing to die for Christ, to live for him and to die for him. That's just the gospel, folks. I'm sorry. If you believe something else, you've been sold a bill of goods. <laughs> That's why Paul in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 says, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer. Before they, it seems, seems, 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 3, before people were baptized, they were told, you know, and this might cost you your life. I just wanted you to know. <laughs> right? Just wanted you to know. It's <laughs> just kind of little. <laughs> it's in the fine print of the contract. <laughs> if you want eternal life, you have to be willing to die for Christ, not deny him. So that's what Paul was doing with Timothy. And uh, I'll try to make my fifth observation here. Paul tells 
Timothy in reverse order those things that I already, I already made the parallel to. But when, when push came to shove, what did Paul say? What was his resource? And it literally in the Greek, it's, it's a, it's a, repeats itself. At my first defense, no one stood by me. Humans failed Paul, as far as we know. No one, we don't, you know, Luke was there somehow, but in Paul's estimation, no one stood by me. But who stood by him? God, the Lord. We know in Corinth, when Paul was there and being persecuted, that Jesus came to him in the night and said, don't fear. I have many believers in Corinth. Can you imagine Corinth? I mean, you know, talking about Hollywood or a red light district somewhere. I mean, it was a bad place, you know. Fort Hood, <laughs> when I was in duty there, I mean, it was a bad place. But the Lord stood by me. So he's saying, Timothy, look, it's a 14-mile run. It's a 100-mile run. You know, something you can't, you can't, humanly speaking, you just can't gather it all in, right? I can't, you know, and I think purposely this way. We can't, Lord, on my own, I can't do it. I've been interrogated by the KGB. I was nervous. I've been interrogated twice by the KGB. You know, I didn't do anything really stupid, but I was nervous. <laughs> So the whole point is that when we are tempted to deny Christ in some little way, day by day, or in a big way, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying. Paul, uh, Timothy, I am giving, God has given you an assignment you cannot do on your own. God will have to stand by you. You're going to have to look to Jesus to make it. It's going to be hard, and you're going to cry, and you're going to say, this doesn't make any sense. All these things are going to happen. But if you will rely on Jesus Christ, you will overcome every temptation to deny him in every way, and it will be worth it all in the end. And so that's what Paul says. And now the crown of righteousness is given to me. So Paul was looking, we were talking in the Sunday school today, do we have any rewards, you know? And Paul was looking to that crown of righteousness. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Even though they're going to cut off my head, I'm going to make it. And if I get too involved, I won't be able to do the Lord's Supper. <laughs> but I can make it, and God will be with me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.